This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, The Majority Report, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, Health Care for All Oregon, and Economic Update. Up until recently, things weren't going very well for me. I had a pain in my back and I wasn't happy at my job. My wife wouldn't stop nagging me to lose weight, my hair was going limp, and my penis was thinning. The bills just kept piling up, my dog had glaucoma, and my kids, my kids were losers. On top of that, I never got to see my grandkids, because I don't have any. I was no longer interested in my favorite TV shows. The world seemed depressing, and my cat would not stop pooping. But that's when I discovered that I would likely lose my hearing in 30 to 40 years if I didn't stop using Q-tips at high speed. And my house was built out of asbestos. My feet always hurt, and I was terrible at softball, perhaps the worst to ever play the game. My legs were restless, my hands wouldn't stop twitching, and my parakeet was cheating on me with our neighbor. But that all changed when I discovered pills. Pills solved all my problems and could solve yours too. That's why over 70% of Americans use them. With pills, you won't think about or feel problems ever again. So ask your doctor about pills. He'll probably just give you some. That's his job. Tell him Patrick sent you. Very good and intelligent discussion about the drug war. Among all the things that were mentioned, NAFTA has contributed a lot to the problem. I worry that the TPP will make it worse. My understanding is that Mexico is included in the agreement. I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know, but the, the bottom line is, is that the, the, the biggest problems with the TPP, I mean, that damage has already been done. The biggest problem with the TPP have to do with essentially taking, um, protecting rentiers and making sure that protection becomes global and completely edified and out of the hands of U.S. policymakers or any other country's uh, policymakers, out of their hands, they can't change it anymore because it's been codified in a sort of a law that transcends our laws. And appropriately enough, with the TPP out there, here's a wonderful story about the pharmaceutical industry. On February 10th, Valiant Pharmaceuticals International bought the rights to a pair of life-saving heart drugs. Bought the rights. The same day, the list prices of those drugs, already researched, already developed, already being manufactured, rose by 525% and 212%. 
So one drug rose in price five times plus. The other one, two times plus. Neither of the drugs, nitropress or isprel, was improved nor was the manufacturer of the medicine shifted to a new expensive plant. The only thing that changed is they were owned by a different company. Our duty is to shareholders and to maximize the value of the products, says Lori Little, a valiant company spokeswoman. Sometimes pricing comes into it. Sometimes volume comes into it. In other words, we have these drugs that are life-saving, We did a market research on this. We found that we couldn't expand the size of the market for these, but they're life-saving drugs. Who's not going to pay? The market can bear another five times on one of them, another two times on the others. Now, I know there are a lot of sort of, of, of free marketeers out there who are just saying, this is the way the free market works. But we know so many of these drugs are at one point or another subsidized by government research in the course of their development. But even if that was not the case, we can see that they are sustainable. I mean, we're not, you know, it comes down to society making a choice. It comes down to society making a choice. And this is not one of those situations, as evidenced by the fact that the, the people who developed it were selling it at certain price points, that research and development will be hampered if you don't allow this type of exploitation. No. No. At one point, society makes a choice. Is it profits? Are we just going to allow unfettered profit-making off of nothing other than basically speculation, off of nothing other than having capital. That's all this story is. This is a drug company with so much in profits. They're generating so much revenue that they've got this extra capital around and they're going to make even more money with it has nothing to do with the idea of research and development or improving the health of, uh, of America or any of it. None of it. Since 2008, branded drug prices have increased 127%. 127%. The consumer price index has risen 11%. There were as many as 50% drug price increases during the previous two and a half years as there were in the prior decade. In other words, this is just a trend. <clears throat> These drug companies have a tremendous amount of money. Instead of going out and research and development to develop other drugs, they just look around and they go, what's undervalued? Let's buy it. Jack up the price. We don't even need to put a new label on it. We don't even need to pretend like it's new and improved. 
Best of the left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Prescription drugs, the only ovals that can bring people in the Seattle area joy anymore. To, to put it mildly, to put it mildly, America takes a lot of these things. Seventy percent of Americans take at least one prescription drug. More than half of us take two. Researchers say a record four billion prescriptions were written in 2011. Total drug spending jumped last year by three percent to nearly $330 billion with a B. Wow. That works out to $1,000 per person on prescription drugs. Kind of makes you feel like Walter White could have made more money cooking up rheumatoid arthritis medication. <laughs> but, but, but should this really be that surprising? Because it's impossible to escape pharmaceutical ads. You, you can't turn on the TV without being subjected to an endless stream of sleep-inducing moths, old men getting boners while varnishing chairs, or this. If your bladder is calling the shots, you may have a medical condition called overactive bladder, or OAB. Again? But we just went. Okay, okay. Listen, what that woman really needs is a pill to stop her hallucinating anthropomorphic bladders. You're, you're locked inside a prison of your own mind, Susan! Be gone, demon bladder, be gone! That's only one small part of pharmaceutical marketing. You see, drugs aren't like most other products, because you need someone's permission to buy them, which is why all drug ads end with the same catchy phrase. Ask your doctor if Lunesta is right for you. Ask your doctor about Mirbetric. Ask your doctor. Ask your doctor. Ask your doctor. Ask your doctor. Three words you're either hearing in a commercial or saying to your co-worker when he asks you if the mole on his back looks cancerous. <laughs> I don't know, Gene. Ask your doctor. All I said was, how was your weekend? <laughs> it's probably fine. Drug companies know that doctors hold all the real power in the prescription drug business, which is why, while they spend nearly $4 billion a year marketing directly to us, they spend an estimated $24 billion a year marketing directly to doctors. In fact, one analysis claimed that in 2013, nine out of the top ten drug makers spent more on marketing than they did on research. Drug companies are a bit like high school boyfriends. They're much more concerned with getting inside you than being effective once they're in there. <laughs> so, we thought... We thought... Okay, don't, don't think about that too much. We thought... We, we, thought, we thought we would take a look. We thought we'd take a look at how all that marketing money gets spent, which turns out to be surprisingly difficult. It's a pretty secretive world. You, you usually only get tantalizing glimpses into during lawsuits years after the fact. For instance, in 2012, 
the government settled a case with the makers of asthma medication Advair over allegedly irresponsible marketing practices, which meant for the first time we were able to see this video of a 2001 Advair sales meeting. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Daryl Baker, Simon Jones, Rob Yacht, and Ken Tyma. Y'all ready for this? What the f***? <laughs> that was for an asthma medication, and they were treating it like an NBA pregame show. Please welcome, he's 59, white, he likes turkey sandwiches, and his wife's name is Karen. Ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Daryl Boom Boom Baker! <laughs> the, the audience in that room were pharmaceutical reps, the foot soldiers in every company's drug marketing efforts. Now, drug companies will tell you their reps are there to educate doctors, but behind closed doors, that message can be a little different. There are people in this room who are going to make an ungodly sum of money selling Advair. And you know who you are. Ungodly. That would barely be an appropriate tone if they were trying to get cereal into people's bodies, let alone drugs. Now, now you, don't, you don't need to see the people whooping in that room to know what they look like, because pharmaceutical sales reps are famously young, attractive people. In fact, this is so widely known, it's become a sitcom punchline for years. Today's the day the pharmaceutical reps show up to peddle their new drugs. And at Sacred Heart, that means one thing. Julie's here. If something is a joke on Scrubs, you know it's common knowledge. <laughs> that show did not do a lot of arcane, hey, what is it with phlebotomists and French cuisine? Am I right? You are right, Turk. We're great friends. The, the, the problem comes. The problem comes if those reps don't understand the effects of the drugs they're pushing. Listen to one former rep describe his first training session. I was in a room with 21 classmates and two trainers, and I was the only one with a science background. In fact, on the first day of training, I taught my class and my instructors the very basic process by which two brain cells communicate. So essentially, pharma reps are like the cast of Grey's Anatomy. They're young, they're hot, and they have virtually no medical training whatsoever. Now, now to be fair, most doctors will probably take that into consideration. The problem comes when some don't. I even had one physician um, who would often bring out a patient chart if she was having a difficult patient or whatever the case is. She'd bring out a patient chart and be like, okay, Kathleen, I've tried this, I've tried this. What do you recommend here in terms of tweaking? And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm a political science major. You're asking me, you know, what to prescribe for this patient. Yeah, exactly. Because the only question a poli-sci major is really qualified to answer is, was it weird having to move back in with your parents after college? <laughs> If you're thinking, if, if you're thinking at this point, if you're thinking why do doctors let drug reps into their offices at all, well they don't come empty handed. They'll often show up with free samples and even better, free chicken palm. Whoever said there's no such thing as a free lunch hasn't worked in a doctor's office. There are some offices that advertise in the front desk job description free lunch every day. Not because the doctors are paying for it, because the drug reps are bringing it in every day. Free lunch every day. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but think about it. Lunch is awesome. <laughs> if, if Charlie Manson brought me a free lunch every day, I'd at least listen to his sales pitch on forehead swastikas. Now, I don't think it's for me, Charlie, but keep talking. That's delicious. 
drug companies don't do this to be friendly. They do it because they know it works. In fact, they know a terrifying amount about nearly every prescription coming out of a doctor's office. Every time a, a patient goes into a pharmacy to get a prescription filled. The information is sold to drug companies who send it to laptops out in the field. So we see everything that the doctor does, how many prescriptions he prescribes of our medication and the competitor's medication. If the computer shows a doctor's not prescribing as promised. All you have to do is say, hey, you're banging out a lot of prescriptions for the competitor's drug and not mine. What's going on? Yeah, what's going on, Carl? You seem to be making medical decisions based on your best judgment. I brought you a meatball sub with chips, Carl. Don't f*** me on this! Don't f*** me, Carl! With this, with this level of pressure, unsurprisingly, drug companies have in the past crossed the line, pushing doctors to prescribe pills for non-FDA-approved uses. That's called going off-label. And here is a horrifying example involving AstraZeneca, who the government charged with going off-label with Seroquel an antipsychotic with dangerous side effects. The allegations, which were very troubling, were that they were taking a drug that was really approved for fairly narrow uses, bipolar disorders and schizophrenia, and uh, marketing it for everything from sleeplessness to depression and dementia. Here's the thing. You can't just give people potentially dangerous drugs and see what happens. You're a Fortune 500 company, not a white guy with dreadlocks at Burning Man. Now, AstraZeneca denied any wrongdoing, but it paid half a billion dollars to settle the lawsuits. And if you're thinking, well, look, that's just one company with one drug, you should know that just about every major drug company has paid money to settle similar charges. Johnson & Johnson paid $2.2 billion. Eli Lilly paid $1.4 billion. Pfizer and its subsidiary paid $2.3 billion. And GlaxoSmithKline paid out a record $3 billion to settle accusations that it had, among other things, pushed Wellbutrin, an antidepressant, as a cure for weight gain and sexual dysfunction. Or, as one former drug rep describes the pitch... It was a quick zinger for your uh, doc to tell your doctor, Hey, doc, remember Wellbutrin? It's the happy, horny, skinny drug. Okay. <laughs> That's not just irresponsible, that's copyright infringement. Because there is only one happy, horny, skinny drug, and that is crystal meth. That's a fact. So that, that's a fact right there. And, and for, for the increasing number of doctors who will refuse even to see drug reps, the companies have one other trick up their sleeve. Simply paying doctors to talk to other doctors about their products over dinner. And that sounds ridiculous but not as ridiculous as the special ego-boosting title they use. I essentially say to a doctor, hey, our company has identified you to be a thought leader. Would you like to be a thought leader for our company? Uh, the doctor will normally almost every time say yes. Yeah, of course they say yes. That's an appealing phrase. Doctors like to be called thought leaders the same way that Brendan Fraser likes being called two-time Academy Award winner Brendan Fraser. It's, it's clearly not true, but it's got a lovely ring to it. And look how happy it makes him. Look at, give the guy a gong. Look how happy he is. In fact, the problem is, for a position described as thought leader, not a lot of thought goes into the job. In many cases, the slides and the content and the script are actually prepared by the drug company. It's not always uh, clear to the audience that this is material that was really scripted completely by the drug company that was paying the doctor to give the talk. Okay, so, so if you're a doctor just regurgitating a script, you're not really a thought leader so much as you are a thought-sayer. Abraham Lincoln was a thought leader. You're more like the animatronic Lincoln at Disneyland. <laughs> now, now, 
To be fair, again, GlaxoSmithKline will no longer pay for thought leaders, and the industry in general claims they're reforming. In fact, a spokeswoman for Pharma, the drug industry's trade group, has even bragged about the tough new restrictions they've put in place. In our pharma code, we say that pharmaceutical representatives could, can bring an occasional meal, um, a modest meal, turkey sandwiches, pizza, um, I don't want to just focus on turkey, maybe we could have ham sandwiches, uh, but modest meals, not steak in a restaurant. Oh, oh no, no, no. Not in a restaurant, although we probably allow a steak at an Outback Steakhouse because, come on, that's not a great steak. That's basically a chunk of horse meat with grill marks drawn on it with a sharpie. So no, no one's getting ethically compromised by that. That's what we're saying. This voluntary pharma code is, I guess, a step in the right direction. So let's see how one of their members have been avoid abiding by it. The Justice Department filed a civil fraud lawsuit against the Swiss drug maker Novartis, accusing it of paying kickbacks and lavishly spending on doctors, including taking some out to Hooters in exchange for prescribing its drugs. Don't worry. Research has shown the best medical decisions are always made with an Aristona State College football game blasting in the background. But at least Hooters qualifies as a modest meal. They allegedly also pay doctors to speak at places like L2O in Chicago, a restaurant whose Zagat review reads, and I quote, Tabs may bring tears to your eyes, so many say it's for special occasions only, unless, of course, you go on someone else's dime. <laughs> I'm guessing at the end of the meal, the waiter came over and asked, separate checks, or is one person buying your influence? Just one, is it? Oh, that's very nice of him. There you go. And at least they were there for that one. The, the suit says many doctors took payments for speeches they never even gave, all of which Novartis has denied, saying that everything they did had a legitimate business purpose, and besides, speaker programs like theirs are an accepted and customary practice in the industry, which is kind of the whole point. Even in its best form, hiring doctors as paid spokesmen seems like a conflict of interest, and multiple reports have found that many drugs' top prescribers are also often getting money from that drug's company, which is worrying, because we trust doctors. When you see Rihanna trying to get you to drink coconut water, you know she's getting money to do that, and you take that into account. You think to yourself, no, I'm glad you're getting paid, Riri, but um, I'm actually not going to drink that, because you and I both know that coconut water tastes like cereal milk mixed with bull semen, so we both know that, so I'm going to take that into account when I make this decision for myself. I know this has all been disheartening, but luckily, there is actually some good news here. A new clause in the Affordable Care Act will, for the first time ever, allow average citizens to search a federal website to see all of the perks given to physicians by pharmaceutical companies. Now, I know what you're thinking. What? A federal website made up of a list of doctors? Hold on, let me command T up a new tab right now. <laughs> but, but look, this website is actually kind of fascinating. The first batch of numbers are now online covering the last five months of 2013 and you can, and absolutely should, 
go online and look up your doctor at this address and see what you find. Maybe you'll find your doctor did a, a little research for a drug company, which is probably fine. Or maybe, as ProPublica did, when they looked at pharma payments, you'll find a doctor who's earned more than a million dollars delivering promotional talks and consulting. Or maybe, like we did, you'll find a doctor who got food and beverages one day worth four cents. <laughs> four cents. I have to know what that meal was. Because the only way a four-cent meal makes sense is if that doctor is a mouse. That's the only way it makes sense. Wipe the cheese it dust off your whiskers before you prescribe me anything. The point is, there is information on this database you should know. And this should really be just the beginning. If drug companies really want to regain our trust, maybe they should let us know the effect that their money has on doctors in the only way they know how. Have you noticed anything strange about your doctor? Does he seem happier than usual these days? Is he quick to prescribe drugs you think you might not need? No, one more actually. Does his waiting room frequently feature surprisingly attractive, not sick looking people? Well, that may be because your doctor's been taking pharmaceutical money. Pharmaceutical money takes many forms, from free lunches to speaking fees. Here's how it works. Money combines with the cash receptors in your doctor's wallet to create fast-acting financial relief. So your doctor can rest easy and enjoy life. <laughs> Common side effects of doctors taking money may include chronic overprescription, unusually heavy cash flow, dependency on free samples, inflammation of confidence, affluenza, and an increased tendency to suggest off-label prescriptions, which in turn can cause heart attack, stroke, loss of feeling in arms and legs, seizures, blurred vision, grinding of the teeth, temporary deafness, total blindness, numbness, sudden bursts of rage, reduction of trust, angry erections lasting over 17 hours, and death. Ask your doctor today if he's taking pharmaceutical company money then ask your doctor what the money is for. Ask your doctor if he's taken any money from the companies who make the drugs he just prescribed for you. Then ask yourself if you're satisfied with that answer. Pharmaceutical money. Ask your doctor if his taking it is right for you. Ask your doctor about that drug. Ask your doctor if he let She was stressed, depressed, and messed up, hit the wall. Then she took a little pill and she thought it was a miracle. Nirvana at the mall, she's got it all. She asked her doctor about that drug. Asked her doctor, feel that buzz. I got an email from a viewer in Finland, Osmo Ronkinen who wanted to comment on the story we did last week about whether it should be against the law to advertise medications and medical treatments on television, given that it doesn't really provide the average end user, the average viewer, the information they need to make rational and logical informed decisions about care. And Osmo wrote to us and he said, Hey David, in Finland it is illegal to advertise prescription drugs to the public. As far as I know, this is based on the idea that the doctor should decide the treatment. This probably suits well on traditional diseases 
uh, I don't know if English is Osmo's first language, but he says this probably works well for traditional diseases, but I do not think that the principle suits reproductive health. This is circumvented by ads that just encourage people to ask doctors. Like, for example, erectile dysfunction can be treated, ask your doctor, Pfizer. Now, this is kind of what I suggested, but we thought nobody would pay for it, Lewis, which is, with some diseases that have stigma attached or conditions, like erectile dysfunction, if you don't have television ads, people may never even think to ask their doctor about it, out of shame or out of even just lack of knowledge that this is something that the medical world can deal with. It is clearly an ad in Finland that is sponsored by Pfizer, so presumably they would hope that when you go to your doctor, if your medication is indeed the right one, that that's the one the doctor would prescribe. This isn't an altogether terrible in-between, Lewis, between no advertisements at all, letting people know that certain conditions can be addressed by doctors, and the complete other side, which is ask your doctor for this particular pill. Shane and I have been talking about this uh, ACA. <laughs> it feels like we've been doing the radio show. Uh, the Supreme Court just ruled on the Affordable Care Act. And, uh, Shano, you want to explain what happened? You're the sure. uh, the uh, law school graduate here and uh, a certified Supreme Court reporter, actually, with credentials and everything. Yeah. Well, well it, it was a big win, of course. I mean, everyone's probably heard this right now. So what the Supreme Court did uh, was say... Uh, we're going to look at the entire text of the of the stat, of the ACA. You know uh, what what happened in this case, of course, is, is everyone already knows. But we'll recap real quickly: is opponents of the ACA went in and said, uh, "Hang on, my, my levels are a little low here. Sorry." Uh, went in and said, uh, "This one specific phrase of the Affordable Care Act says that it, that subsidies to buy health insurance may only go through s- exchanges established by the state." Mm-hmm. And there's a one little section of, of IRS Code 36B. The Supreme Court said, we're not going to just look at this one sentence. They said, we're going to look at the entire ACA, the entire Affordable Care Act, and we're going to interpret that sentence in light of the other sections of the ACA. And they determined that regardless of whether that said exchanges established by the state, we're just going to apply this to state and federal exchanges because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. Right. Um, Things that they did is they they went and extrapolated out. If you were to only allow these these subsidies through the state exchanges, how it would affect other parts of the ACA, how it would essentially fall apart on itself, and how it would affect states that didn't that that allowed the federal government to set up these exchanges, how there would be a death spiral in terms of all people would not go get insurance because there were three parts to the Affordable Care Act. Everyone gets insurance, no pre-existing conditions, and we're going to make it affordable by doing these subsidies. If you get rid of any one of those three, through history, as states have tried it that way, it's, it it's, blows it's, up. It blows up. You have a death spiral. So, And they said Congress could not have possibly meant to enact a law that's going to 
create a death spiral in terms of health coverage. So therefore, you know, and there was another section of it where they also said the, the, the states shall exchange, uh, establish an exchange. That was part one. Part two, if they don't, the Secretary of Health shall establish, and it said, such exchange. And this was really key to them because the, the, use, the use of the word, of the phrase, I should say, such exchange in their minds, and the justices that voted for this, the, the six, uh, such exchange meant that the two exchanges were the equivalents. Right. They operated the same way. Uh, they had the same parameters. They had the same requirements, the same uh, ways to get into it. They were going to operate similarly from state to state, so they were the same thing. Right. Now, my take on it, you know, I, I originally had, in fact, I last night on television, I predicted that I thought that it was going to come down pretty much like exactly like it did. I didn't yeah. know where Kennedy was going to go, but I knew that Roberts was going to be in favor of maintaining it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because Roberts always votes for the big corporations. Right. Always, always, always. And uh, what happened as soon as this decision came down? The stock value of all of the insurance companies just jumped up. Did it really? The, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and and the same thing with the big hospital chains, both of them. They just they just went up. And, you know, it's a, for predictable reasons. I mean, this sure. is, you know, 8 million more customers. It's, you know, the, the ACA is a boon to big corporations as well as to the American people. And, uh, you know, it's we could we could get the same thing for half the price if we did Bernie Sanders uh, Medicaid for all or Medicare for all rather. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we're going to do it this way, it's uh, you know, it seems to be the American way. Make sure that somebody gets rich and and things get done. Interestingly, the dissent was written by Justice Scalia. Right. And, and it, it, what's interesting is but in both the decision and the dissent, they mm-hmm. cited uh, uh, Marbury versus Marbury Madison, versus Madison yeah. saying we have the power to decide this, and then right. and then uh, Scalia, Scalia said you have the power to, to tell you what the law is, but we don't have the right the power to rewrite the law. Right. But right. he has some great quotes because he, his decision, his I should say dissent, uh, was pretty sarcastic right. as he is often wants to do. Some of the the lines uh, we should start calling this law Scotus Care. <laughs> look look for the right to start bringing that up. Right. Uh, another quote, words no longer have meaning. Mm-hmm. Today's interpretation is not merely unnatural, it's unheard of. Um, yeah. Uh, and the cases will publish forever that the discouraging truth that the Supreme Court of the United States favors some laws over others and is prepared to do whatever it takes to uphold and assist its favorites. So he thinks that the, the majority in this case simply was going to do whatever it could to uphold the ACA. Right, and and uh, essentially that's what I'm saying. You know that that yeah. Roberts Roberts was going to do what he was going to figure out a way to keep this thing going because yeah. you know corporate America wants it, the Chamber of Commerce wants it. Uh, you know they they may fund anti Obamacare talk because they don't like Obama and they don't like Democrats. And uh, but you know the fact of the matter is that everybody's making money on this. And, and Scalia even went on to also go back and complain about the prior ACA ruling too, saying, yeah. "Well, we wrote the law, we rewrote it last time when it said it was a penalty, and we called it a tax. So right. we're just doing the same thing again." So he took another smack at Roberts. There. Right, right. Which, in other words, Roberts didn't go far enough when he said states could opt out of uh, the Medicaid. Right. So very, 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 very interesting stuff. It's something unattainable. 
If you work for yourself, you can save 50% on an entire year of QuickBooks Self-Employed. It's built from the ground up to support the needs of the entrepreneur who wants to avoid the headaches of small business accounting. They help you keep your business expenses separate from all of your personal stuff. They'll help you calculate your business deductions like home office and mileage, and even help you prepare for your quarterly estimated taxes, which totally come back to haunt you if you do them wrong. Trust me, I know of which I speak. Find out what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you and receive 50% off at tryselfemployed.com slash left. That's tryselfemployed.com slash left. Let's ask, why is it that in Western Europe, private health insurance companies are associated with better care to more people for less money? But in the United States, private health insurance companies are driving the cost of care up. (laughs) European health insurance companies resemble American health insurance companies the way European football resembles American football. Different goals, different games, different rules. Private health insurance companies in Europe can set whatever price they want on their policy, but they have to sell it at the same price to everyone, regardless of health. The next rule is you cannot refuse to sell a policy to anyone who asks. Patients can change their insurance companies whenever they want, but insurance companies can't drop a patient for any reason, not even failure to pay, because the government will step in and pay the premium. The third rule is every policy has to cover every treatable condition, so that no patient, when they pick an insurance policy, can be left with a, an insurance coverage that is so inadequate they lose their home, a limb, or a life because they made the wrong choice. And in many Western European countries, if the government has discovered that you, the insurance company, have still managed to cherry-pick the healthiest patients, you will pay a premium that will subsidize the insurance companies that are picking up the slack. Consequently, the ways that insurance companies in Europe can compete are only by lower prices, extra benefits, or better customer service. Imagine that. In the United States, these rules do not apply. None of those rules apply. So if I'm running an insurance company, a health insurance company in the United States, the first thing I want to do to make money is not insure anybody who's sick. One way to do that is to charge a lot. Sick people don't have money. The next thing I'm going to do is look for the first opportunity to drop any healthy patient who becomes sick. Considering that the average worker in the United States changes their insurance plan every six years, there are many opportunities to do that. The next thing I'm going to do is restrict benefits. Most people in the United States pick their insurance plan because of the price of the premium, but they don't examine the benefits. As a matter of fact, the benefits package is so complex 
Very few people can understand them. The next thing I'm going to do is once I've got your premium money, I am going to delay or deny payment to providers as long as I possibly can. And if I delay payment to providers long enough, some of them won't give up and I keep that money. And that is the story of private health insurance in the United States. Prices go up. Only healthy people can afford them. Healthy people who get sick get dropped. And providers have to spend inordinate amounts of money trying to collect their due from insurance companies. These rules are not only not applied in the United States, they're not acceptable by private health insurance companies. I want to begin today with a report just out by the Commonwealth Fund. It's a research uh, foundation that does very interesting work. And they've done some work on private health insurance. Uh, most Americans, if they're covered by a health insurance program, are covered by a private health insurance program, usually through their employer. And the Commonwealth Fund asked a simple question. How have people been doing... Over the last decade, basically the years 2003 to 2013, in terms of their medical insurance. We've been a nation engaged in an immense debate on that subject. We've had the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. We've been debating and discussing and fighting about that for several years now. So what's actually been happening? Well, the most stunning statistic in the report that I want to read to you, because it's so clear, is the following. Between 2003 and 2013, the deductibles charged to individuals who have private health insurance have more than doubled. In fact, they've gone up 146% by average. The deductible is the amount of money you have to pay out of your pocket before the insurance you have kicks in to cover your medical expenses. So... When you add the increase in premiums that private individuals have had to pay, together with the rising deductibles, the part that they have to pay out of their medical bills, you get the second most impressive statistic. Between 2003 and 2013, the cost of the premium to the worker, not the part paid by his or her employer, the cost to the worker of your premium plus your deductibles have gone from 5.3% of the average citizen's income in the United States to 9.6%, almost a doubling. So with all the talk and all the promises and all the posturing of our political and medical leaders, 
if they deserve the term, what we've had as the bottom line is that the cost of medical insurance has gone way, way up over the last 10 years for the people of the United States. And as if, as if that weren't bad enough, and remember, that's a time when we've had the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, so that on top of all the difficulties in our jobs, our benefits, and so forth, the cost of our medical insurance has gone up. But the biggest increase is in the deductible. So I want to drive home a point about that. If the first one or two thousand dollars of medical costs you have are your responsibility as a working person before your insurance with your employer kicks in, guess what's going to happen? And you don't have to take a long time to make this guess. You're not going to go to the doctor if you don't desperately need it. You're going to postpone it. You're going to avoid it. And the same is true of medicine that you may need because it's dollar for dollar out of your pocket. So what is likely to happen? And the statistics already show it is happening. People are going to the doctor less. People are using medicine less. People are postponing procedures. And guess what a rule is that every self-respecting doctor will tell you? Don't do that. The longer you wait to deal with a medical problem, the more serious it's likely to be, the more difficult it will be to cure, and the longer and more expensive the treatment will be. So what you're doing to the mass of Americans is clear. By jacking up how much they have to pay, you are reducing the medical care they get. You're deteriorating the health of the population. There's no pretty way to describe this other than to say it's part of the destruction of the standard of living of the American people that this economic system is foisting upon us. And these latest statistics from the Commonwealth Fund show it clearly. should I pay for other people's health care? There's a couple, couple reasons. One is, I'm already paying for other people's health care. In Oregon, we paid for $1.1 billion of other people's health care. And a significant amount of that was paid for really sick people who finally staggered into the emergency room to get their first treatment for their disease. If we provided not just free emergency room care for acute complications of chronic diseases, but paid for free primary care, free preventative care, free outreach care, then I'd be paying a whole lot less for other people's health care. The question isn't, 
how can I avoid paying for other people's health care? The question is, how can I reduce it? The way I do that is with a single-payer system. We ought to pay for other people's health care because it reduces our own health care costs. We have epidemiological studies around the country that show that those counties, those areas that have the highest percentage of people who are uninsured without access to health care have the highest health care costs for the people with insurance. Remember, no health care is free. Somebody pays for it. So every time somebody goes into the emergency room for a preventable complication, our taxes go up, our health insurance premiums go up, and in my case, I'm working for free. If we provide these people with access to keep them out of the hospital, all of our costs go down. Your friend brings up another issue. Why don't we try saving money by denying health care to the undeserving, the people who are here illegally, the freeloaders, the people who are suffering from diseases self-inflicted by self-abusive behavior, tobacco, alcohol, food. Leads down a very slippery slope. Who determines who deserves health care? Do we have somebody at the emergency room saying, I'm sorry, but you smoke too many cigarettes, you're not going to get health care. Or you're one pound over the BMI limit, you don't get health care. Or we draw the line at three drinks a week, you have four, you don't get health care. Who's going to make that decision? You talk about death panels. Now we have somebody making life and death decisions that say, if your spouse is brought unconscious from an automobile accident and her ID is lost and she has no proof of payment, we'll leave her out in the parking lot because she clearly is a freeloader. Morally, it's a horrifying alley in which, into which we're venturing. The important thing to realize, though, is that the successful healthcare systems in the United States, the successful healthcare systems around the world, none of them exclude anybody. They don't exclude the undeserving. They've come up with a way of financing healthcare, of distributing healthcare that's so efficient. They can accommodate all of these people and still provide better care to more people for less money. We shouldn't focus on who we provide health care to. We should focus on a health care system that provides health care for everyone, that encourages them to seek health care, and cuts out private health insurance companies and replaces them with publicly accountable, transparent, not-for-profit funding. That's what single payer is all about.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, universal access to affordable medicine. Now, obviously, we need single-payer health care. That goes without saying, even though we should all continue to say it. In the meantime, however, there is work to be done to help alleviate suffering and improve quality of life. Prescription medications are one of the most expensive parts of healthcare, even for people with insurance. Pharmaceutical companies already enjoy the profit-boosting privilege of lengthy patents before generic versions can be developed and sold. Originally, this was designed to help research institutions and companies recoup the millions it cost to create a drug, thus making it less risky to fail now and again, and somewhat profitable to manufacture medications for uncommon ailments. Like everything else, however, corporate greed has turned a well-intentioned fail-safe into a way to injure anyone who isn't rich. The leaked language in the Trans-Pacific Partnership indicates that its passage would likely intensify this injustice. According to Doctors Without Borders, aggressive intellectual property rules would restrict access to affordable, life-saving medicines for millions of people by enhancing patent and data protections while dismantling international public health safeguards and obstructing price-lowering generic competition. In short, we need an international movement supporting medication access, and we need it now. The Access Our Medicine initiative, which is supported by the prescription assistance nonprofit Needy Meds, is working to make affordable medicine a priority in the UN 2015 Sustainable Development Goals currently being discussed. These discussions set international cooperative priorities for the next 15 years, so it's kind of a big deal. The Access Our Medicine Declaration has already garnered the signed visible support of individual doctors, famous advocates, and organizations like the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, the MS International Foundation, and more. What they need now is a groundswell of support from us. You can sign the declaration at accessourmedicine.com. While you're there, take advantage of their cache of stories from real people, easily shareable facts like one-third of Americans with a chronic disease has difficulty paying for food, medications, or both, and well-curated media page. After you add your name, let people know why this issue matters to you by sharing it with the hashtag, hashtag why I signed. For immediate help paying for medications, visit needymeds.org and click on their generic assistance program. They offer 20 generic medications for no cost in coordination with Prescription Outreach, the largest nonprofit pharmacy in the country. And if you aren't in need, go ahead and pass information on the program around because you never know who in your network might be. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If affordable medications and making access a global priority matter to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Access Our Medicine Declaration via social media so that others in your network can get involved. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage Question, to, uh, to which I respond. Could you please go over, even though you've done it before, says a listener, the conditions of the medical 
coverage versus the medical expense here in the United States. I'm going to do it by using the latest report of the Commonwealth Fund. That is a very famous foundation that is this leading researcher publishing wonderful reports on the medical system of the United States in comparison with other countries. Its most recent report is excellent. It looks at the following 11 advanced industrial countries. I'm going to read them so you know exactly who's being discussed. Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and the United States. A list of 11 of the wealthiest countries in the world. And they're ranked according to the quality of the medical care they provide, the health conditions of the people, and how much is spent in each of the 11 countries on health care to get the health outcomes they have. Here's what I want again drive home, and these numbers are wonderful. Number one in expenditures is the United States. $8,500 per person. These are data from 2010, the most complete data that we have. $8,500 was spent per person in the United States. The next highest expenditure was in Norway. 5,600. Okay, so the United States, 8,500. The next highest, Norway, 5,600. But you might be interested to know that in the United Kingdom, in Britain, the amount spent per person on health care was $3,400. So let me do this really quickly. The United States, we spend $8,500 per person. In Britain, $3,400. Well, how do Britain and the United States rank in terms of overall health care provided to its people and health conditions of its people? Britain ranks number one, and the United States, out of 11, ranks number 11. Wow. Let me do that again. Quality of health care delivered to your people in Britain, number one out of 11. Quality of health care delivered by the American system to its people, number 11 out of 11. We pay way more and we get way less in the way of health care. Anyone who wasn't blind or biased beyond redemption would know there is something fundamentally wrong in the fact that the United States spends so much and gets relatively such poor results compared to other countries who spend much less and whose results in terms of the quality of care provided to its people is so much greater. Britain has a socialized medical care system. The government provides basic medical care and insurance to everybody, period. The United States has a private capitalist medical system. Private profit-driven corporations make our medical devices, make our drugs, run our hospitals, and run the insurance companies that provide us with medical insurance. We are a private profit-driven capitalist medical system. The British are a socialized, collective, government-provided medical system. They rank number one in care and cost $3,500 per person. We rank 11th in care and charge everybody $8,500 a year. This is stunning. 
there is no refutation here that is anything other than protecting what ought to be condemned. Hey, Jay, this is Brian from Ohio. I wanted to call in about the libertarian gentleman who left a voicemail. I thought he sounded very reasonable and relatable about his opinions until the end when he got sort of snotty, but it was during the reasonable part that I thought to respond to him. I found this show while I was a libertarian because I heard it advertised on the David Pakman show, which I found after he had Anonymous and Tracy Phelps Roper on for an interview. I considered myself libertarian, and that rationalized some of my liberal social positions with the you-mind-your-business-and-all-mind-mine school of thinking. I begrudgingly listened to Best of the Left with this, well, I should at least find out what the left thinks attitude. What happened was I slowly had my bad ideas eroded away as more and more reasonable information was presented to me. That's what's great about the show, the diversity of content presented. It gets you out of your own preferred media echo chamber and forces some new ideas into your field of view. What this guy says he has in common with the ideas presented in Best of the Left are the things libertarianism permits so long as you still believe in deregulated capitalism and small government. That's obviously how libertarianism gets its hooks in you. For the person with a good moral center and a fair intellect, the most destructive part of conservatism is repackaged alongside some social sensitivity and called libertarianism. If you have no empathy in your body, you can be a Republican. If you believe most of America's wars, including the drug war, are a waste of time and you are cool with the gays and pot, you can be a libertarian. This works to the benefit of the corporations who don't give a shit what you believe as long as you espouse opinions that benefit them and vote to put their chosen politicians in office. I hope this gentleman listens for a few years more and one day calls in with an update to his opinions. For an open-minded person, there's no amount of bad ideas that can't be fixed up given enough time and good information. I've been listening for five years, or just about. So thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work. Uh, Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Sunnyvale, South Bay. And I was just listening to your Waging Peace episode, and... I came to a thought while listening to the section about the cost of war that truly one of the biggest costs of war is in a way of subsidizing the nations who would normally be responding to war. The UN security force is made up of quite a few different countries and they have not had to increase their national armies as long as the United States has been the world police and as long as the United States continues to be the world police and intervene in all these conflicts that means that these other countries can spend so much more on infrastructure they can spend so much more on social welfare and safety nets whereas the United States has to pull from everywhere just to support another country's military. And this gets even worse when you're talking about us 
building militaries in other countries. Obviously, a military is important for stability in a country, or at least a police force is. But when we are breaking down and rebuilding a country like Iraq, we're essentially subsidizing an entire country, and that just doesn't seem sustainable. Thanks anyway. I love listening to your podcast and keep doing good work. Hello, Jay. This is V from New York, calling about episode nine three three. I posed a challenge to you some time ago about racism, and I'd like to applaud you. You have definitely risen to the occasion. So I tip my hat to you on that. This is probably one of your most solid racism episodes ever. It exposed a number of things which white liberals need to know about and should know about. So I definitely tip my hat off to you on that. One thing that is of concern to me, which is always of concern to me, but in this nation and liberals and conservatives in general, they are dealing finally with things which took place a hundred years ago. They're dealing with what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and some other spots where black communities were decimated. However, one of the points that is often not mentioned, and it needs to be mentioned, and it needs to be highlighted, that which was done then. Happened again in the 60s and the 70s, but this time it was state-sanctioned. Many of the suburbs which exist now, the freeways which connect them, those suburbs to what we often call the city, the downtown area where they go to work. Those freeways, most of them were built through thriving black neighborhoods. So this needs to be kept in mind. The ghettos which you see today are those displaced people. Now, I want to recommend a couple of books to you and your listeners because、um, if you truthfully want to know about this stuff, the depth of it cannot be captured in a couple-minute clip. So the first one is a Consumer's Republic. Just type it in; it will come up immediately. It's a great book. It's very, very underrated. Secondly, is Working Towards Whiteness. That's another one. Great book, very underrated. A two-volume book called "The Invention of the White Race," another just brilliant, brilliant book, which、um, all white people should definitely read. The fourth one is "Racism Without Racists." That's a little bit harder to get a hold of. I don't exactly know why, but it is a good book. And then finally, the racial contract. These will help smash images and kind of rid yourself of the delusions that has been imposed. This is a really big moment, ladies and gentlemen, and I hope everybody listening to the show understands this. We are coming into a time of intense economic problem and turmoil, and historically, every time that has happened, white people tend to attack black people. So, hopefully, this could be changed this time. Jay, keep up the good work. I'm eager to see what you do next. Peace.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Hint, if you do the voice memo app thing and email it, you'll sound much better on the show. Now, 95% of the time, either a voicemail message or some other source of inspiration in the universe gives me the idea of what I want to talk about at the end of a show. Today is one of those days where I find myself lacking. I just don't have anything to add. So instead, I'm going to give you guys some prompts. Maybe we'll start a new conversation and we'll see where this goes. I thought if you have ever thought to yourself, you know, I wish you would make an episode about this, X, uh, call in and let me know because uh, there are probably topics out there that are totally off my radar that I should be paying attention to. And if you've ever thought to yourself, yeah, I've been meaning to call in or, or write a message to say now, do it now. This is, this is your inspiration to speak up. Um, secondly, maybe there's something about politics you've never understood. Hey, why is it that this happens in this way? Or, you know, hey, I heard someone talking about this thing and I don't know. I just didn't understand what they were saying, but like I, I've kind of heard a lot of people saying that. What's that all about? Anything along those lines, if you've ever had a question like that, call in and we'll see if we can figure it out. Now, I have this last set of questions you know, or prompts, and I'm really excited about these. I would love to hear stories from you guys. If there is something that you feel like you do differently than normal, the, you know, the standard American status quo, you do something a little bit differently and it makes you happier or healthier or wealthier or wiser or anything like that, I would love to hear from you. So maybe you have always just done something different, but you've always appreciated that that thing about yourself, and and it has brought joy to you. Or maybe maybe you made a change in your life. Maybe a big change, maybe a small change. But you know, when I stopped doing that thing, or when I started doing this new thing, I got this great appreciation. Or you know, it helped me save money. But at the same time, I was healthier and happier about it anyways. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you some examples. Like, you know, I started biking to work and so I felt better. I was healthier and I stopped burning gasoline and, and putting wear and tear on my car. So I was wealthier from that. And so maybe the combination of those things makes you happier in total. Or, you know, maybe you decided to stop eating out so much, whether it be, you know, lunches at work or dinners out and so, you know, not eating out so much, probably going to end up being healthier, uh, definitely wealthier, you know, if you stop spending so much money in that way. Uh, and so that could work out for you. But then at the same time, you know, eating out, if you do it all the time, well, then that just kind of becomes the standard. But if you do it very rarely, well, then eating out is now a special occasion. So it's exciting to go out rather than ordinary. And so maybe the excitement of going out rarely makes you happier. Um, one, one last one, sort of a bigger example. What if you, you know, consciously decided to to buy when you bought your last house, uh, you bought a a house with big south facing windows, you know, because you're conscious about how energy gets used, and you know that having big south facing windows, at least in the northern hemisphere, 
means you're going to have really low energy costs. So that makes you wealthier. And then, you know, you think about it a little more, having big windows facing south means there's going to be a whole lot of natural light in your home. So maybe all that natural light makes you happier. Things like that. So you, you get what I'm driving at here. If there's anything, I mean, along those lines, but let your imagination stretch far and wide. What do you do in your life that you think is sort of different from the norm or a change you have made that brings you happiness, but you know, you don't have like the opportunity to tell people, Hey, you know, I started doing this thing and now, you know, it makes me really happy or I'm saving a bunch of money. Cause then, you know, you, you tell that to your friend and that's going to sound like you're judging them. Like if they didn't make the same change that you made, you know, maybe they're going to think, Hey, he's just giving me some good advice. Or maybe they're going to think, Oh, okay. Like, so you're better than me now. You're, you're judging me because I didn't make the same change that you made. Well, this is your opportunity. You call into this show. No one's going to judge you. Uh, we're all just going to learn from your wisdom. So whether it's a little quirk of yours or a major event in your life that you have a story to tell, uh, I want to hear about it. And now before I go, I just want to thank into a QuickBooks for sponsoring today's episode. If you work for yourself, save up to 50% for an entire year on the new QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses and helps take the guesswork out of estimated federal quarterly taxes. Try QuickBooks Self-Employed and receive 50% off at tryselfemployed.com slash left. Now that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained. We can see past all the sad stories and wonder why we're missing. We can see past all the sad stories and forget Sit down, start on the side, start.